Creator God, bless these words, fill our thoughts, and make our hearts race with the touch of your Spirit, that we might each go from this place as a child of God renewed. <laughs> as some of you know, a year ago my father uh, died, and as we helped him through his last days, and then as uh, we planned his funeral, the internet delivered to me a momentous discovery, and that discovery was that uh, Frank Sinatra's rendition of I Did It My Way is the most favorite funeral song in North America. Mm. I guess that's proof that individualism will never die. Um, although, this has been a year of funerals, and so uh, in a little bit more research, I found out that I Did It My Way has now been bumped off the top and replaced by Monty Python's <laughs> Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, <laughs> which is proof of I don't know what. So let's uh, pause here for a moment, you and me, and uh, let's maybe take a look at the uh, irony of the situation in chapter this morning. Um, maybe do a little mental learning on what's happening in this space. I have been assigned the topic of individualism <laughs> as an idol and ism, a myth of our age, and I'm delivering a sermon to you as an individual, and you are silent, mostly. I wrote this sermon as an individual. In fact, I was on the train Tuesday with my earbuds in. I looked in no one's eyes. I spoke to no one. I did not crowdsource this sermon. <laughs> I read a few commentaries, did not use most of what I saw. So I stand here, I guess, participating in the high art of ecclesiologically sanctioned individualism. <laughs> I suppose that means you and I are part of the pedagogies of the empire. So, we might do well to heed Paul's call here from individualism to community. I think you know how this text goes. We heard all of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians read. And it rings true to us today. It's essentially part of our Christian understanding. As my old uh, doctor father, Jimmy Dunn, put it in his best Scottish understatement, the collection of church communities in Corinth, he says, was a very mixed group with several differing views and practices which put considerable strains on their common life. And that's putting it lightly, many commentators would say. Uh, according to some, there were divisions between them amongst the purists and the integrationists amongst the traditionalists and the revolutionaries, between the slaves and the free, between the lowborn and the highborn, between those with and without foreskins. There were scandalous social, economic, and spiritual divisions. There were fights over the Eucharist. Sounds like our time as well, I guess, in some ways. But Paul is arguing very hard here at the in the final chapters of 1 Corinthians for some kind of sense of collaboration cooperation. In fact, he wants more than that. He wants the communities of Jesus to dive more deeply into some kind of synergy between them, despite the fact that they're struggling with
is Paul doing in 1 Corinthians 12? Well, the imagery of the body he borrows, it's already known in other texts in his world, but he does something different with this imagery of the body. He performs a reversal on it. And he uses the body imagery to remind those at the top of the hierarchical pile that the lesser members of the body have a unique and important place. We are all to be valued. Does this ring of some of Jesus' own statements about the least of these? About the upside-down kingdom in the Gospels? By reversing uh, this use of the body image, Paul is challenging cultural assumptions about hierarchy and authority. And he presents an alternate image of life, of you and I in community with God and with each other. So there is a political and even an anthropological dimension to his message here. Not only is he railing against disunity, he's defining a new form of social and cultural equity within the body. Paul's repeatedly interested in the honor and respect of every member, whether vulnerable or powerful, whether capable or disabled. Well, how does this work for us today, this analogy of the body? I think, as I said, it's well understood by the church, but perhaps not so well practiced. Paul is obviously not speaking from the stance of a microbiologist, but he actually got it quite well when we think about our bodies and our church in contemporary terms. I, I like to listen to Quirks and Quarks, and the other day, uh, Quirks and Quarks told me that the human body is miraculously con complex. They actually use the word miraculous on Quirks and Quarks. It has 37.2 trillion cells at the last count. <laughs> 35 million heartbeats every year, you and me, 35 million each year. 200 red blood cells produced, sorry, 200 billion red blood cells produced each day in each of our bodies. 100,000 kilometers of blood vessels. And there's a complexity and a wonder here and in the global body of Christ, I think, which Paul is well versed in using as an analogy. Christ's living body is similarly miraculously complex today, composed of billions of members living in millions of different settings with thousands of living languages, many unique expressions culturally of the faith. Multiply this by the complexity of Christian expressions through 20 centuries of this common era. So it does raise a question, when Paul uses the analogy, was he thinking about one little micro-community in Corinth? Or was he thinking about the collection of Christian communities in Corinth and around it? Was he thinking more broadly? Many commentators want to push the circle wider and see the body of Christ, even in Paul's first use of those terms, as writ large. There are other readings that have arisen, of course, in the 20th and the 21st centuries, partly because of the power of this text calling us from our wondrous difference towards a unity in the spirit. We have black readings of the text. We have womanist readings of the text. We have ecological readings of the text. We have liberationist readings of the text. And they all have something to 
Richard Rohr, 
it's helpful to see our hyper-individualism as arrested development. Maybe it's a stage of life that we can grow out of towards deeper independence and community. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul promises a more excellent way. He reminds us that the greatest charisma that God can give us is love. Love for people who don't think like us. Love for the other. Love for the foreigner. Love that drives radical hospitality. Love for people who don't share our points of view. Rather than becoming individualists and heroes, perhaps we are to make love 